Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you for being here and giving me this opportunity to speak about uh, one of my pet topics, which is uh, the future of education generally, but specifically here in India. Now, this event is being held at a time when some very major uh, sort of shifts are taking place uh, in the space that you are in. It's happening not just within your own uh, space, but more generally. And there are it's technology uh, or demographics or our economic requirements. All of these are converging in a way uh, that will uh, create both the space and opportunity um, you know, to do something very radical, and I'm going to talk to you about what the challenge is. But in some ways, radical change is perhaps inevitable anyway. So, what is, what are these, diver, what are these diverse uh, sort of uh, factors that are beginning to play out? First and foremost, as many of you have read in the newspapers, as of this week. India has now become the world's most populous country. But importantly, this shift has happened in a way that is quite different from what happened in China, which was a very sudden drop in their birth rates. Ours have been much smoother, which means that our demographic shift, of course, will be somewhat smoother. But that does not mean, however, that it will go on forever. We effectively have a 30-year slot where India will be at its demographic peak. So from about now till somewhere around about 2050 or something there, about 20, early 2050s. So not, a, not for eternity. So in this 30 years, a disproportionate proportion of India's population will be a working age. Because our birth rates have fallen, the inflow of... Uh, sort of children will drop, but we won't be aging on the other end so rapidly. So in fact, what will happen is that our dependency ratios will drop from here on and will remain low for the next three decades. And this is what everybody knows is the sweet spot which other countries, whether it was China in the last 20, 25 years or the other East Asian countries before that or Europe even before that and so on, used to drive rapid growth. So this is the first thing that we are already embarked on, the second stage of demographic transition that we, we have already entered it. The second thing that is happening is, of course, the transition of India into a major player in the global uh, supply chains. This is already true in the field of services. India, for a variety of historical reasons, um, became a services economy before it became an industrial economy. Of course, we continue to have aspirations to sort of fill out retrospectively the industrial stage as well. And as you may be reading in the newspapers, we are now making a big effort and push to insert ourselves into the global goods supply chains as well. But whether it's services or goods, it does mean that India has an extraordinary opportunity here to grow at a heightened rate of economic expansion uh, over a long period of time, the kinds that 
in the past were seen, as I said, in East Asia and before that in Europe and other, what are now the developed countries of the world. Um, as, uh, <clears throat> and in this, we are seeing large amount of shift of global supply chains already happening. Just in the last few, few weeks, you've seen, for example, Apple um, beginning to shift a large part of its production. And of course, its partner Foxconn begin to shift a lot of its production into India. You're seeing that happening with Adidas. It's happening with Puma. Across every kind of product, you're beginning to see companies moved out of China and more generally East Asia and move them to India. So in this, obviously, a big important part of this is rapid skilling. So whether it's the demographics or the needs of an economy that is now, by some margin, the fastest growing major economy in the world, we need to educate and skill our workforce as fast as we can. And we can't wait for, you know, a decade or two to build out old-style bricks-and-mortar universities um, in the way we may have had the luxury of doing in, uh, in the past. Or, for example, uh, the West did in the 19th and early 20th century because they went, you know, during their high-growth phase... Uh, it was much it was much smoother curve in a sense they had they had since in the industrial revolution happened late 18th century the uk actually went into its uh, higher growth stage somewhere in the late 18th century sustained it through much of the 19th and early 20th century so we will be compressing all of that in the 30 years and we are already in that 30 years so what can we do about our education system to deal with this now, there are many ideas there, and many of them are there in the new economic policy that came out just a year and a half or two years ago. I'm not going to talk, deal with what needs to be done with, you know, uh, primary and higher uh, high school education. This is more or less about tertiary education. And let me say, there is a huge opportunity here because of yet another shift, a technological shift that has also happened uh, as we in the last few years, which is the coming together of various digital technologies which allow for giving um, and scaling up uh, tertiary education on a massive scale at a fraction of the cost it would have taken if we had to do it the old bricks and mortar way. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying, let me say, we have a situation where YouTube has made repetitive lectures redundant. You just need to give one lecture anywhere in the world in a subject, and that's good enough. All of us can watch it. ChatGPT has made Q&A redundant. All kinds of libraries are now available for research, more or less digitally available. Even even history, where some you may need some archives, etc., much of it is now available. And of course, in the sciences, whether it's, you know, uh, various kinds of academic papers and all kinds of other data is now available almost freely worldwide at the click of a button. And of course, even classroom experience can increasingly be mimicked, at least to some extent, through things like Zoom and so on. So, given that this is how we have ended up, it seems to me that... It is a waste of time for us to try and create tertiary education and upskilling in the 
traditional way. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't other roles that universities may play in terms of socializing and such like. But my view is, look, why do I need to build large, expensive campuses for that? Surely what you really need is a bunch of cafes and YMCA or whatever it is that is the equivalent in your country. For an education, I actually need to enable these digital tools, package them in a way, and make them essentially free. YouTube is free. Zoom is essentially free. All these archives are free. Chat GPT is free. The age of expensive university education, at least for undergraduate education, I believe, is now over. So what is the role that universities will continue to play? Universities will still have something, a role to play, but it will be about other things. One important thing it will, a role that it will have to play will be about testing. About making sure that claims made by students about certain levels of skill are true. So that continues to be a role that universities will play. It's a signaling tool. It's that that's key. And that is something they'll have to... The old idea of that you can give people a project, etc., is now redundant. You, this is where the better the, the better, better the ability of a exam system to be able to, to test the knowledge and problem-solving skills of a student, the better that university, uh, the value proposition of that university. Two, the research that these universities do. Because now what is standardized is available freely. So what, what is it that universities bring to the table? Universities bring to the table the cutting edge of pools of knowledge which have not yet become digitized and standardized, where they are still fluid areas of knowledge. So I think this is another big area that universities will play a big role. So all of this, by the way, However, means that we need to completely think, rethink the need for these old-style legacy university campuses. I am of the belief, by the way, that there are already too many university campuses on this planet. India does not, has not yet built the universities of the future, and perhaps we will never need to build them. We will need a few university campuses, which may be used... For you know, each batch may need to come come together for a few months of the year. But this idea that you know an IIT needs you know needs to exclusively be put 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 aside for one batch for four years is over. Each batch may come in for three months of the year. That means four batches in twelve months can be easily put pushed through. Many batches may never even have to come through. Uh, you can even get them to meet in other other locations in other ways. Uh, and of course, this is an opportunity in multiple ways because in a rapidly changing technological world, we need to also get away from another legacy issue, which is this business that you spend essentially the first 25 years of your life getting loading on information and skills, and then you work for the next 35 years or so till you retire, and then you go off and play golf. That is already over because... What this old-style education does is by the time the person is actually taking real decisions at, in their 50s, 
they are the most redundant people in the entire chain so this old style of giving skills is largely pointless because the least skilled are the most senior in the system so we need we will be very soon be having everywhere i think and you already seeing that in happening in corporate corporate environments people are beginning to have to go back and take reeducation in multiple fields and by the way this will happen even for people um not just within their skill level but w- where old skills are dying out so fast old fields are dying out so fast you may be have to go back and reskill yourself in a completely different field at the age of 50 but that's okay because most of us in this room are going to live till 80 and we will probably be reasonably fit fit to the age of 75 so it's perfectly fine to spend the first 25 years of your career as a lawyer and then go back to university and then have another 20 years as a doctor you know the average 75 year old today is fit enough to go to office every day so not a big deal so all of these changes are beginning to happen whether we like it or not but for india this is a huge 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 opportunity because bringing together all these pieces means that we can leapfrog we can leapfrog just like the way we leapfrogged fixed line telephony and went mobile we are going to leapfrog old style education and go digital to the extent we can because we need to do it quickly and because there simply isn't any time or any point in recreating old university education thank you very much ladies and gentlemen capacity is a big issue in india because it takes a long time to build bricks and mortar it's very bad for the environment uh, land use is is a complex issue in india and expensive and, expensive, and it's uh, perhaps a, a misallocation of resources currently the majority the vast majority of options either lie in on campus or online that's it and there's not very much in the middle just talk to us a little bit about your vision as we've got so used to hybrid working and rotating people through hot desks in corporate environment same in government now as well how you see that playing out and using the existing infrastructure that's built much more efficiently and effectively to produce greater le- levels of capacity this transition has already happened in the workplace think of we work right same infrastructure whole bunch of other other uh, um entities whether it's uh, startups or various uh, or uh, uh, or other kinds of economic entities are using the same space um they're just booking this as themselves a spot going there doing their own thing and carrying on now i understand there may be certain areas of science where you have specialized equipment etc but remember for the most part that is post graduate education and it is specialized high science much of education doesn't require all of this so it is quite okay in my view to think of this think begin thinking of the to the extent we have face to face interaction we begin to do this basically like we work you may even have four higher campuses in the morning it is ashoka university in the evening it is penn state why not um and 
if they want a lab even, there's a lab at IIT Delhi which can be hired for several hours or a piece of equipment or whatever it is for a certain time. You go and do your experiments or whatever it is you want to do. Now, at the very cutting edge of very high science, I understand they need dedicated stuff. For the bulk of stuff, you don't need all of this. So I think we need to begin thinking of this. You know, people do their lectures. They've already understood it, done some tests. They've crossed some level of capability. Then in maybe that's your first semester. In the second semester, it's, it's in campus, so to speak. And that in campus could be anywhere in any campus. Um, you could be simultaneously doing this in some WeWork type space. And then you hire a lab and you do your own thing. It can all be very disaggregated uh, uh, approach. What this will do is radically lower the amount of bricks and mortar we require. That is the real cost of, um, of education. And also, of course, professors. And now what you do is you free up the professors from giving lectures because, you know, they just watch YouTube. Now they are, all they are doing is all the hands-on stuff. So now suddenly... You can do all the cutting edge other things. So now, same number of professors can pump through a radically higher number of people through the system. I was on a campus uh, recently with one of the vice chancellors uh, from an Indian university who's in the audience today. And I said to him, how are things going? He said, Adrian, we're, we're totally full. Uh, until I build that tower block over there, I can't take any more students on board. And I thought, this is crazy. You're delivering a quality education. There are people knocking at the door to come in, but you're waiting for bricks and mortar to be established before you can build it. The purpose of my visit to that campus was to talk to him about using his campus during the summer months for experiential learning programs where the peacocks run wild because there's no one on campus. And it struck me that there is capacity but it's just in a different form. And one of the complaints about the Indian higher education system, and I think it's true for others across the world, which changes that the NEP provides green shoots for, is just a new way of thinking. And perhaps we don't need this structured term approach. We can use those fallow summer months to run programs more aggressively and use the capacity that is there already. So, so not just fallow summer months. You see... We have created higher education as some sort of go and explore yourself kind of thing. This is all very good for uh, relatively prosperous uh, countries and from even in India for the relatively wealthy. For the bulk of people, they are basically wasting their time as far as they are concerned. This is a privilege. On the other hand, if you think of education the way I put it out, it as a largely mundane thing. You, the, Many of these kids may be having day jobs. They can do apprenticeships. They can do all kinds of other things. And I don't think this interferes in any way with their education. It's a matter of how hard they want to work. For example, one of the toughest things you can possibly study for in this country is to become a chartered accountant. Now, it's set up in such a way that you are expected, in fact, to be working while you're doing your chartered accountancy. The quality of education is not poor. The testing system is rigorous. The people who come out of that are technically highly skilled. So if you can create these highly skilled chartered accountants using this mechanism, why can't I produce other kinds of skills using this same mechanism? Let them go and work while they're at it. You've talked about 
disruption and its role in higher education, many other sectors have already been disrupted beyond recognition over the last five years and in a way where industrial leaders leaders felt that their businesses were going to be redundant very quickly, but they found ways of innovating and, and creating new business models. Uh, the higher education landscape is yet to be fully disrupted, although, as you said in your remarks, there are early signs that that is now very much underway. One of the biggest fears and opportunities in higher education is the evolution of ChatGPT as a major disruptor. Just talk to us a little bit about where you see that disrupting the education landscape and how universities can respond to it. Well, there is the almost trivial thing that has already happened, which is that doing projects, asking people to do projects is now pointless because chat GPT will essentially write out the essay for you. So that kind of thing has already happened. I mean, whether we like it or not, it'll get even better. Now, of course, somebody may try and counter chat GPT with an anti-GPT that can actually check whether this is a chat GPT generated essay, but I'm quite sure chat GPT will work that out as well and disrupt that as well. So I'm not getting into that arms race there. My thing is that I think it's, it's actually a more, in, more useful to think of it as an ally than an enemy. It's an ally because effectively it makes redundant the last thing you needed the lecture theater for, which is Q&A. The lecture itself is redundant anyway because of YouTube, right? Um, any kid who has studied through the COVID period was anyway listening to the lecture online. So you're going to listen to the lecture online. Why do you need to listen to your professor's lecture? You can go to anywhere in the world and listen to anybody's lecture. As a matter of fact, I know for a fact my own kids uh, uh, had in their own uh, universe swapped the um, passcodes of each other's universities because they had amongst themselves worked out which, which professor gives the best lecture on the planet. So if there was a great professor on Khan Academy, they were watching Khan Academy having stolen each other's passwords. So it made no difference. And now, of course, much of this is on YouTube. It's free. And all you need to go and see how many, what are the comments and the number of hits. You can see, you know, some of the better lecturers get 20, 30 million lectures, uh, hits. So you can work out that this guy has a good lecture. Why would you want to do this? So the only reason you still needed your classroom was to do the Q&A. That is gone. Chat GPT is going, Chat GPT 6 will have solved that problem beyond recognition. So you don't actually need lectures at all for any of the traditional repetitive lectures. That's gone. So, therefore, rather than see it as a problem, I think what you need to do is to simply standardize and simplify the lecture format and simply turn it into something that people need to go through. And then, as I said, the real fun is going to be to devise testing systems that actually test the person's understanding, knowledge, and problem-solving capabilities um, beyond what ChatGPT will do for him or her. So that is, I think, the real game. Rather than waste our time trying to improve the lecture, try and improve the testing system which may have to now be done in multiple other ways, which is good, by the way. I think that will allow for better triangulation and attention now the universities will give to testing systems. Corporates constantly complain that they don't get job-ready graduates. 
So in your vision of how this evolves, do you see a different role that corporations have got to take in education or, or where does the evolution of the academic delivery meet businesses so that that complaint ends once and for all? I think that complaint will disappear within 10 years because universities can now scale up infinitely in some ways. See, the better ones that can create job-ready uh, graduates can scale up infinitely because you're now not, you can give lecture infinitely to infinite number of kids and testing, yes, you have to invest a lot in good testing systems, but remember, using AI, you can also um, sort of uh, do this testing in a mass scale. So now what happens is I am a corporate. I go and explain what I need. I will tell I, either the universities will take on what my needs are and will create testing systems for me. Or I, if I'm a large enough corporate, like if I'm Infosys or TCS or whatever, I will create my own testing systems and give my own degrees. So what will happen here is a huge churn because right now the thing is that Bricks and mortar has limited the gates. So the better ones cannot infinitely expand. But now in an environment where they can be infinitely large, uh, if you cannot, I, either you provide something extremely specialized and survive, or you scale up massively, or you die. I mean, essentially what's going to happen is what Uber did to traditional taxis. That's basically what's going to happen. One of the benefits of online education, particularly in India, is, been, is, is that there's been a greater take-up of uh, female uh, students because they don't have to worry about um, uh, going over to campuses, they don't have to be away from home too much, and, and uh, they've been able to learn. And the poor. And the poor, yeah. So, and, and this is, I think, where the crux of India's challenge is, is that it's not just about the 1% or the 2%, it is the entire country that needs a high-quality education and access to it. Absolutely. So our problem is we have 1.4 billion people plus. Most of them are young. For me, building hostel rooms for so many people is a ridiculous thing. I, I haven't been able to provide them at proper primary homes. And now asking, building an entire network of hostel rooms, people now have to travel all over the place and then give up three, four years of their lives, waste of time. They should be able to take this education anywhere they wish, anytime they want. Maybe they may have to travel occasionally, as I said, for short periods to do the interactive parts or do the tests or do the, in the, in the science and engineering, maybe to visit a lab. But even there, those things can be brought close to this person. As I said, there is, uh, and, and, and you can do it in multiple, you can cut and paste them in multiple ways. I may be working in, uh, in Chennai. I did the first two years of the course in Chennai IIT and my company shifted me to Delhi. I finished my course in IIT Delhi. How does that matter? I just need to get the credits. I certainly subscribe to the opportunity to bring people together um, fairly regularly because I think those soft skills, the communication, the collective problem solving in person, there's still a big role for that. And some of our greatest challenges around the world are not technological. They are people-to-people -people disagreements. So let me say here, there are two things. First, it's not very obvious to me that universities will necessarily play that role. 
do remember that the business of going to university as a very common thing is a late 20th century phenomenon. Till the 1950, only the rich, rich really went to university and the odd, really talented person who got a scholarship. So, it's not the case that people didn't socialize. There were other institutions for socializing. So, for example, in the West, YMCA played a role. It's now disappeared, but it was a very important... In India, there was a network of gymnasiums called Akhadas, which used to play that role. Everybody was a member of an Akhada in their neighborhood. They went there, the young men usually, but also sometimes women went there, and so on. So, there were a whole bunch of institutions for socializing. So, new kinds of institutions. So, let me tell you, if universities are banking on this being the their reason for survival, let me tell you, you're in for a shock. Other institutions will come and create that, take away that space. I think that's, that's in a sense, good news for those international institutions who are in the audience, who are coming here, scared of building full campuses for all the reasons you've outlined, the cost, the complexity, just the management of it. And many of those senior leadership who are here for this summit have said, how do we find a model that isn't a full campus but still creates the value? So I think between some of the levels of anxiety, hopefully there is some optimism and some ideas out there. Yeah. Secondly, secondly, there are two things. First of all, don't assume that that social aspect cannot be taken care of by some other competitor. Inst- uh, technology is allowing all kinds of other things to happen as well. And there are other kinds of institutions which may do it. As I said, if people are routinely working while they're studying, maybe their companies will provide it. So don't don't count on, uh, you know, the traditional view of socializing, providing you with that space, number one. Number two, it's not even obvious anymore, particularly true of U.S. campuses, that they anyway provide that socializing. Given the ideological breakdown that has happened in much of, uh, particularly U.S. campuses, but also now in many other Western campuses, it's not clear to me that one of the roles that universities played is that providing diversity of views, that is not happening. The whole, I think people are underestimating the impact of this woke ideological purity that is imposed on Western campuses has meant that the diversity that you were supposed to be exposed to is anyway happening. So why why on earth should I waste time to get to go to a university to see diversity? I'm almost going to see a ide- ideologically pure space where I'm actually not allowed to explore other ideas. Just very briefly, you have the ear of the prime minister. What do you, what does the prime minister see the role of the government of India is in higher education beyond the NEP over the next 20 to 30 years? With technology rapidly changing as it is, we don't have a view for 20, 30 years. Our basic point is this. Most important thing is change according to what happens rather than get stuck with having these grand plans about exactly how it will go. We have no idea how technology is going to evolve. I'm going to adapt. My my game is not predicting where technology is going to go, but to adapt to whatever happens quickly. By the way, that's not just true of education. I mean, you can hear my lectures in many other fields. This is my standing and this government's standing approach to the uncertainty of the world is feedback loop-based adaptation 
will always beat grand plans, whether it is our approach to dealing with COVID or our approach to dealing with technology or with geopolitical situations or with education. This is our standard approach to dealing with the future. Rapid response rather than grand plans. Very good. Thank you. Professor Agarwal. Two questions. Your regulatory frameworks are way out of line with your thinking, what you have kind of discussed so far. The government's regulatory framework. Number two, why can't you extend this backwards to K-12 education? You're absolutely right. Regulatory frameworks um, may be out of whack, but we'll change them. But first you have got to figure out what is it that you are, what is the, the environment that is emerging. As it emerges, we will change it. It's, there's nothing is set in stone. After all, we do this routinely in every other field. We are doing this in the stock market. We are changing, we changed our tax system, introduced the GST system. In the economy, we introduced the insolvency and bankruptcy code and allowed all kinds of changes in the corporate sector. We are doing this in defense sector. We, we've gone from being heavily dependent on the Russians to now becoming much more building our own capacities and so on and so forth. So we routinely change. So if, do not for a moment think that we are not capable of changing our educational regulatory framework. We will change it, number one. Number two, as far as K-12 to is concerned, a little more complicated there because there, I think at least, particularly in the lower um, segment, uh, you still need perhaps um, human intervention to bring in kids, smaller kids, and allow them. As they get older, you see, all these systems require that you know, roughly speaking, your ability to navigate, ask the right kind of questions, etc., for maybe class 11, 12, etc. may be able to deal with it. But say a class 4 student may not be, may still need to be guided for the time being. And in fact, there, this socializing issue is, becomes even more uh, important. Um, so I think for lower classes, some of this will happen as well. And in fact, there are opportunities here because, for example, for Indian language education, this is a huge opportunity. For me to find you know, several thousand uh, teachers in Bengali who can teach science of a certain quality may be very difficult. But it may not be difficult for me to find two such people, get them to uh, do a series of lectures that I can put on, on YouTube and then the local teacher only has to make the kids listen to it and then answer some questions and help them with physically with so what i'm trying to say even there we can do these things but i can i can see that you need uh, an adult to provide some amount of hand holding an 18 to 24 year old which is basically the your university education particularly undergraduate 18 to 22 that basically are they are dealing with standardized information masters and phd are dealing with non standardized education so uh, information so there I can see you again need to bring human beings back. But this is a sweet spot. Undergraduate education, in my view, is a sweet spot. Kids are old enough to be treated as adults, but they are still dealing with standardized knowledge. So this is a sweet spot where you can allow um, all these technologies to basically free play. Thank you. Just still, I still think the regulatory framework needs to move faster. Yeah, we'll change yes, it. Yes, and, and very rapidly. 
Yeah, we can change it. In fact, the idea of these discussions that we are having is to leapfrog. Uh, yes. I think in fairness to Sir Sanji, for the past year he's been pulling me into his office for ideas and more ideas and more ideas and, and that's very much part of the role that you and, and, and Niti Ayog with, with Dr. Shah who's been with us this morning are, are driving is to make sure that the NEP is just the beginning of a significant uh, evolution of, of India's education landscape. Other questions? So thank you for sharing your thoughts and giving us a picture where the students have the flexibility of choosing different programs from different universities and, you know, work with the best of the professors across the world. But uh, given that we are in a country which has got such a huge population, what, according to you, is the biggest challenge in making this a reality? That is number one. And number two, what is the timeline that you see that this can be actualized and can practice in a country like India? The biggest constraint to mass scaling is that we continue to think of university education as bricks and mortar, large numbers of professors giving repetitive lectures. Both of these are expensive things to do, i.e., and of course, needing hostel rooms. So the mental image of university education still is some kid goes away for four years, does these repetitive lectures in a bricks and mortar place and spend four years doing it. This mental image is the constraint to mass scaling. And I'm just saying all of this is already redundant. The technology has already gone past this. So we are wasting our time trying to do this. We need to simply bypass the stage. And the alternative happens to be digital, an area which, ironically, we are very good at already. So... We have this opportunity of literally skipping over the bricks and mortar expansions phase and going directly to digital education. And of course, it comes with all kinds of freedoms that are not possible in a bricks and mortar environment. So if I want to study some random combination of subjects, a digital system doesn't care, right? I may be studying law in the morning and English literature in the evening, or simultaneously, how does it matter to the digital system? It doesn't care. As long as I can then pass the exam testing systems later on, I can do five degrees in five colleges. How does it matter? If I have the absorption capability, I can do it in any combination as long as I get the credits. By the way, the NEP does, talk, does one good thing, and that is to shift everybody to think in terms of accumulation of credits as the route to getting a degree. So if that is the way we're going to do it, then, you know, frankly, we can open this up in all kinds of ways. I mean, you can do one credit in one university, another credit in another university. Uh, you can be doing five degrees at the same time. You can do it at any pace you want. Why do you have to do it in four years? Some people may do it in seven, some may do it in two. How do I care? A final question, sir, and then we'll wrap up. Societies around the world have the uncanny knack of holding on to um, redundant concepts. And we've seen following COVID that universities, because of the demand from students, have snapped right back to on-campus bricks-and-mortar universities. What needs to change in society? What's, what are the triggers that need to happen for society to acknowledge that perhaps we don't need to go to a bricks-and-mortar university? So this may not be a problem in India. Because 
the university educated population is a minuscule part of our population so in the next decade or so most of the kids who will be going in for university education are coming from backgrounds that have never had any university education their parents were perhaps the first generation that went through school their grandparents were perhaps illiterate so in that environment there is no preconceived notion of how uh, university education may have to be delivered so they may actually glide seamlessly into this new universe quite fast um so for this is one of the reasons for example why um we have uh, skipped very rapidly into digital payments because people who never had bank accounts went digit- directly into a universe of digital payments so sometimes there is an advantage of not having a legacy that you have to carry around well uh okay one very last quick question uh and then we'll have to wrap up because the next panel are eager to come on i can see um one thing we've noticed with uh, first of all your talk was very very thought provoking and very interesting <clears throat> but when we see people who are taking classes from all over the world via youtube or um coursera wherever the drop off rate is very high so unless a student is very very motivated are you concerned about a lot of students dropping off and left by the wayside so what will happen is as it's since this will now be you are looking at a world where the free market is going to function you will see people will drop off or not drop off as it will so new equilibriums and setups will happen some universities will figure out ways in which to keep students hooked on and they will suddenly expand out so i don't think that we are in the very early stages of this transition so coursera and so on are just the are new are just experiments along the way and i'm 100% sure that people will work out formulas for keeping people hooked on the system if traditional universities are relying on stickiness as their main reason for existence i think you're in for a shock yeah i've seen with my own son the gamification of his maths classes keeps him engaged far longer than if it was a simple uh school taught maths lesson so um agree that technology will keep up with that well ladies and gentlemen uh, i hope you'll agree it's been a thought provoking challenging uh session uh with sanjeev he's always got views that are um many years ahead of traditional thinkers and uh we've been very grateful for you to give up your time and thank you very much thank you very much